Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the home of behind-the-scenes interviews, stories, and memories that celebrate the heritage of the great game of hockey. The Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast is hosted by Mark Willand. One of my all-time favorite players and people in hockey is my good friend, the magician, Andre Lacroix, and he's our guest today in the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast. Andre, of course, was the all-time leading scorer in the World Hockey Association, with 798 points in just 551 games. Amazingly, he averaged nearly an assist per game throughout his entire WHA career. After a 147-point season with the San Diego Mariners in 1974-75, Andre was named the French-Canadian Athlete of the Year, besting Guy Lafleur, Marcel Dion, and Gilles Perrault, among others, for that great honor. Andre also had the distinction of playing for five different WHA franchises without ever being traded during his seven years in the Rebel League. And that journey, of course, began as a Philadelphia Blazer in 1972 and ended as a New England Whaler in 1979. Prior to joining the WHA, Andre was a dominant player in the OHA with the Peterborough Peets and in the AHL with the Quebec Aces. He joined the NHL Philadelphia Flyers in 1967-68 and was twice the leading scorer for the Flyers before being traded to the Chicago Blackhawks in 1971. After his career concluded in 1980, Andre embarked on a successful TV and radio broadcasting career with the Hartford Whalers where he teamed with legendary radio broadcaster Chuck Caton, a very, very popular duo in the Connecticut area. Andre was also a huge part of the Hartford hockey community. Personally, I spent a lot of time with Andre, Gordie Howe, Mike Visor, Doug Roberts, Gary Swain, and many more Wales alumni as we barnstormed through Connecticut to play hockey games for charity. Now residing in Ohio, Andre remains one of the most popular figures in Hartford hockey circles and every other stop along the way of his 60-year hockey journey. We could have talked for hours with Andre, and perhaps we'll do that soon. But for now, here's a great, honest, as always, discussion with a true hockey legend. This episode of the PHA Podcast is sponsored by HockeyTournaments.com. If you're looking to play in a tournament or just list your tournament, head over to HockeyTournaments.com. Also, for great classic hockey online, check out these Facebook pages. WHA Hockey, Hartford Whaler Nation, the official Boston Bruins alumni, and pro hockey alumni. Well, we're back with the podcast with my good friend, Andre Lacroix. Andre, thanks for being with us today. Mark, my pleasure. It's been too long. Absolutely. Andre, as he knows, and anybody who knows me knows, one of my favorite uh, players and people in hockey of all time had an opportunity to uh, spend some time with him uh, during the Hartford days and in Hartford obviously Andre had his impact uh, in the community as a broadcaster as a player but one thing that kind of flies under the radar sometimes is the great success he had as a coach at Trinity College he also went on to coach at a variety of different levels very successfully uh, in California and in Ohio and we receive a lot of positive feedback about players for from players who played for you during those uh, years as, as a coach can you talk a little bit about your coaching philosophy and 
must be great, very gratifying for you to uh, get such uh, positive feedback from your former players. Well, I think what helped a lot is that uh, when I retired with the Whalers, uh, I got the opportunity to coach with a uh, great coach at Trinity College, John Dunham. Just Not just a great coach, but also a great guy. And uh, I coached with him for about, oh my gosh, six, seven years at least. And that gave me an opportunity to help coach at the uh, college level, which, you know, it, to me, that's the step that the kids get ready to hopefully maybe play pro they can. If not, they're just happy to play college hockey. And we've had a lot of success there. Then I, I also coach a lot of youth hockey program. I coach uh, high school hockey. And uh, I always tell the kids, every level that I coach, I said, I want you to get ready for the next level. I want you to make sure that you work as hard. Don't work for this year. Work for next year. And so I've had a lot of success coaching at the youth level and at the high school level. And I think I was so happy to be able to give something back, you know, to the community. Andre, switching gears for a moment. Recently, a former teammate of yours, John McKenzie, passed away. You played with John in the first year of the WHA in 72 with the Philadelphia Blazers, and you played with him in the last year of the WHA with the New England Whalers. What are your memories of Johnny Pye McKenzie? Well, Pye was just one of those guys that you hate him when you played against him and you just love him when you played with him. And he always had a smile on his face. And then if you want a teammate that go to bat for you on the ice, you want Pi McKenzie. And then he was always at the right place at the right time. He always did the little things right. Size was no factor to Pi McKenzie. And Johnny also always had time for the fans, which I was always impressed with that because this is something that it, it, makes, it misses today that we've had in the past. And players like Johnny McKenzie, you know, Gordy Howe, uh, you know, they always had time for the fans. And I think Johnny will always be remembered, not just for, for a great hockey player, but also for a great person who always knew where he came from and always had time to sign an autograph for whoever wanted it. Well said, Andre. You mentioned Gordy Howe. And when I think of Gordie Howe and Andre Lacroix, I think of some of the great days of my early career when we would travel around Connecticut playing charity games with the Hartford Whalers alumni. Well, I miss those days, to be honest with you. And the reason I miss it is because we had fun. We raised money for charity. And then, you know, you miss not playing hockey. doesn't matter what level it's at. I'm 73 years old now, and I play every Sunday morning at 7 o'clock. And uh, year-round, I have a group of 20, 25 people. Every Sunday morning, we meet for, for an hour and a half, and we play. And that keeps me in shape. And also, it, it keeps me involved in the game as well a little bit. You know, I, it's funny. Even at, at this age, we play with a group of 40 and over. I still teach. You know, right. every once in a while, I, I'll stop to play and tell them, Next time you try this, you try that. You know, you, 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 don't, you just don't want to forget that. And I think what happened when we were playing in the alumni games, I think that the team were playing a lot of times against, you know, high school or college coaches. There were a lot of kids watching. And I think that you, 
you just don't want to embarrass yourself. You just want to go out there and put a good show on for everybody. Andre, looking back at your career, putting up remarkable numbers uh, as a leading scorer in the OHA with Peterborough twice, uh, dominating offensively for the Quebec Aces, the American Hockey League, making a huge impact when you finally get to the NHL, top score with the Philadelphia Flyers for two seasons. Then you're traded. The Flyers have a philosophical shift. They're going with bigger, more physical players. They trade you the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, that is not a great year for you, not a great fit with that team, but it also kind of, in a way, leads you to uh, your journey in the World Hockey Association. Well, you know, I think what happened was I was uh, I was with the Flyers, and then when I got traded to the Blackhawks, like you said, Mark, uh, it didn't turn out too good for me because as soon as I got to Chicago, I got to sit down with Pitt Martin and uh, Brian Campbell, which I knew beforehand. And uh, they told me, they said, Andre, be careful because the reason they brought you is to play with Bobby and they've tried everything and nothing has worked. And I said, okay, thank you very much. You know, and um, what happened is that I had to change my style of hockey to play with Bobby. And you cannot do that. You need to play your own game. And I couldn't play my own game. And at the, what happened was near the end of the season, this I was on my last year of my contract, and uh, I got received a phone call from an attorney from Philadelphia who was going to buy a franchise in the WHA. And he said to me, he said, Henri, he said, uh, I don't know what you're making, but he said, uh, I would like you to come back to Philadelphia. I've watched you play for the Flowers for three years. I would like you to come back to Philadelphia and join our team. And he said, I don't know what you're making. Please, I'll double your salary and give you a five-year deal. And I said, I'm gone. And right. then what happened is Chicago never had any interest at that point, I don't believe, to offer me a contract. But when they found out that I was, I might be going to the WHA, they offered me a contract. And obviously, I didn't take it because I didn't want to go to another year like I did the previous year, and I came back to the Philadelphia with the Blazers. It was a... Uh, did you sign with the uh, Blazers prior to Bobby Hull jumping leagues? No. But when I, what happened is Bobby's the one that convinced me to jump league, basically. Bobby was just a great teammate. I mean... Uh, Bobby was like from the old school. He, he was just like Gordie Howe. He signed every autograph. I mean, it got to be the point where we, when we were, when I was with the Blackhawks, every time we were on the road and uh, we had a bus picking us up after the game, the bus had to keep start going because otherwise Bobby wouldn't get on the bus. He just didn't want to say no for an autograph. Right. And I, and Bobby had told me that he was going to sign with uh, Winnipeg, you know, in the WHA. And I said, well, if Bobby Hall jumps league, it's good for anybody. And I, because Bobby was, I tell everybody, I said, when I played with Bobby Hall in Chicago, Bobby Hall was as popular or as big as Michael Jordan was in Chicago. Right. Because he was the man. He was the man. And, and in many ways, off the ice and on the ice. And I said, if the best hockey, one of the best hockey players in the National Hockey League is jumping league, he knows something. So I said, I can't go wrong. If Bobby goes wrong, then we're all in trouble. And right. that's when uh, 
I think being in Chicago with Bobby convinced me a lot to switch to jump league. Interesting. So hey, maybe there was a positive in that trade to Chicago in the end, uh, because a couple yeah. of guys, a couple of guys were in your situation. I mentioned uh, Chris Bordlow, who jumped to Winnipeg. Brian Campbell, who uh, went uh, yeah. with you to Philadelphia. So some real good talent. Skipping back for a second, you see, because they were in the same boat I was in Chicago, because Tommy Ray was doing the same thing. Tommy Ivan and he was doing uh, Billy Ray was doing the same thing to them as they were doing to me. They tried to, you know, make try to make us play with Bobby. If it didn't work, then we'd pay the price for it. So that's why I think all of the three of us didn't hesitate to jump late. Well, it was a good thing that you did. I, I now, that Philadelphia Blazers team. Obviously, things didn't work out in Philadelphia for the Blazers franchise, but the team uh, had a pretty good talent level. Had yourself. Danny Lawson, Pine McKenzie, Ron Plum, Bernie Perrant, of course. Team got off to a little bit of a slow start on the ice that year, um, then picked it up and ended up having a, uh, a winning season, as I recall. What are your uh, reflections of year one of WHA as a Philadelphia Blazer? Because you took right off, and you really clicked with Danny Lawson. Yes, I think, well, you can't forget the first home game. You know, I mean... <laughs> uh... <laughs> we go on the ice. We're all excited to play our first home game. That never happened because uh, the Zamboni took a bunch of ice up, and then uh, they had to cancel the game. And poor Derek Sanderson, you know, was trying to calm the people down. And the organization had made a mistake of giving everywhere came in an orange puck with the Blazers logo on it, and uh, and the people were firing puck at Derek Sanderson on the ice. You know, so. That was my first experience, you know, with the WC in Philadelphia. But playing with Danny Lawson was just a pleasure. And the reason it was a pleasure, because as a sentiment, you want to play with somebody that's got speed, that will stay on the side of the ice. And when you talk to him, you say to him, Danny, you, you stay open, I'll find you, I'll get you the puck. And Danny knew exactly that I was the one that should handle the puck, and he's the one that could score the goals. And we had, that was just a super combination, Danny Lawson and I. And like you said, we had a pretty good team, to be honest with you. It's just that I, I wish more people in Philadelphia would believe in us at the time. Don't forget, we're playing at Civic Center, which was not a great rink. Uh, at the time, the Spectrum wouldn't give us any dates to play there. So we were in a tough shape, really, to be, to be successful in Philadelphia. And it was still a Flyers town. And I'm not sure that Philadelphia is not New York. I don't think Philadelphia could support too hot, too pro hockey teams. No, but but no. you you really took control of your career uh, more so than any player probably ever. Uh, you played on I think six different teams in the WHA. You never got traded. And so when the Philadelphia Blazers season concludes uh, at the end of the year, the franchise decides to move to Vancouver. Of course, with the exchange rate, you've got a uh, a clause in there that says you don't have to, and then you sign with the in the Golden Blades, as it turns out. But that too, along with the Jersey Knights, ends up being kind of a a rocky franchise to step into. Well, you see, what happened is, I when I jumped to the WHA, I I start to look at myself and I said, wait a minute, I've had some pretty good years in junior with the Pete and Peterborough. I won the MVP two years in a row. I had good years in Quebec City 
when I was my first year pro, when I played, uh, before I went to the Flyers, when I went to the Flyers, I was leading the league in scoring in the American Hockey League with six hat tricks in one season. And I was up by 25 points in scoring. I think the Simone Olet beat me when I went to the Flyers. I missed like the last 17 games. I think he missed me. He beat me the last week of the season. And I think, you know, I knew I could play in the NHL. I just want somebody to believe in my skills and give me a chance to do my thing and put me with the right people. That's what happened with the Blazers. And then with the, this, the reason I decided to go to New York at the time, I, I kept saying to, me, to myself, I was a free agent. That's one thing that I did. When I signed with the WHA, every team I signed with, I became a free agent. If the team moved, if the team changed ownership, if the team changed coach, I became a free agent. So I was never traded. The reason the league sent Ronnie Ward to Vancouver from New York, obviously because he wanted to save face, which I don't blame them. I was never traded for Ronnie Ward. Right. And then I, you know, then I, I had a good season with the New York team. You know, we end up in Cherry of New Jersey, which was, you know, another experience by itself. Right. I mean, when you saw the help come into the rink in New Jersey on the school bus with his equipment on, like the youth <laughs> hockey, you know, and he, he's carrying his skates and his stick over his shoulder, you know, that's hockey, you know, and, um, uh, so, and there was a diff at center ice in that rink in New Jersey, if you remember. I mean, if you break a pass, if you, the pass could just fly right over the guy. I mean, it was unbelievable. Uh, but most of that, most of us live in the uh, West Orange area because we're playing in New York. So we're going by bus to the game, and after the game, a bus would take us back home. And I said, I knew. I said, I didn't have a clue what was going to happen after that season. Right. You know, and... Um, and then, you know, obviously, end up in San Diego, which was a great move, you know, for me to go there. That was the and, that was that was uh, just a tremendous franchise move from really uh, a tough, tough situation in New Jersey to uh, the great climate and great, you know, potential opportunity in San Diego. You team up, I mean, right there in that first year, seventy four, seventy five. You can pick up a hundred and six assists. Uh, probably yep. it was your most productive season of all time. Now, I often think about that season too. Now, you you played for Team Canada, of course. That's seventy four in in the, in the fall. It, 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 I was wondering, was that a catalyst in um, getting? I mean, you, were you ultra prepared for that season physically um, to be able to go to the Team Canada training camp, play at a high level internationally, and then get right into the regular season with the Mariners? Yes, we. Yes, I think you know. I was. I think we all were. I, I believe what happened with Team Canada 74, I think if we would have concentrated more on playing hockey instead of trying to be physical with the Russian, I think we would have probably have a better show, to be honest with you. I think we thought we could slow them down by, you know, being physical, but they were too good, too good of a hockey team to play that way. You need to beat them, you need to play them at third game, which was, you know, good hockey, and we didn't do that. But then, you know, when I came back from Russia, I remember going back to San Diego to start my season. And the coach told me, he said, take a couple of weeks off, you know, before. I said, no, I want to get back right back on the ice. Ronnie Ingram was our great coach. Right. I said, no, I want to get back right on the ice because I want to be with my teammates. I want to make sure that we, you know, we'll work on whatever system you want to work on. I want it to be part of it. 
but besides that, I just didn't be, I didn't want to be away from from them. I just couldn't wait to get back on the ice. And what I had to be careful with because I remember I was, my best weight to play hockey in those days was about one sixty eight, one sixty nine. And it's funny, Mark, because if I was one hundred seventy two, I I could tell the difference before I even got on the scale. Mm-hmm. And I I really kept myself in in really good shape because. I didn't want people, you know, when when you play pro for so many years, you have some pride, and you want to make sure that the people don't think that the year before was a fluke. And it was so important for me to go to San Diego and have a great year because everybody said, well, that hockey will never go in that climate. There's no way, you know. And personally, it was my goal to prove them wrong. And I prepared myself in San Diego the same way as I prepared myself in Philadelphia. I didn't prepare myself any different, except that I knew that I could enjoy the sun every day. Right. <laughs> now, Wayne Rivers was a different type of player than Danny Lawson was in Philadelphia, but uh, you really clicked with him. In that 74-75 season, he explodes for 54 goals, by far and away a career high for him. Except, except Danny was quicker and faster than uh, than Wayne, than Mooner. And also, we had a pretty good left winger, too. Rick Sentes was a pretty good left winger, too. Right. You know, and uh, Wayne Rivers was just a just a normal goal scorer. You get the puck, I mean, he, he knew what the net was. I mean, he was just a great goal scorer. Great two-way hockey player. Good back checker as well. So, I was fortunate because I always had good wingers to play with. And there's no way in the world that they would have had the success that I had unless I had the wingers that complement what I was doing on the ice. So I had a lot of communication with the players I played with. And one thing I did is I made sure when we, in the locker room, I dressed beside them because I want to make sure we could talk between players. I, I, I believe that we could talk before practice we went on the ice. So... The fact that you're sitting by, you know, each other during in a locker room, it means a lot because that you can work on plays that you know you can talk about things you're gonna do and you go on the ice and you do them. So I never took it for granted that hey, you just go on the ice and play your game and things will happen. I just didn't believe in that. I believe that you need to get ready before you go on the ice. Unfortunately, despite having a solid team on the ice and an increased fan base. The Mariners had persistent financial problems, particularly in 75-76, where the team often played without paychecks. Ultimately, the franchise was spared for a year by none other than McDonald's founder Ray Kroc. Can you think back at those times and pretty unsettling times where the franchise seemed to always be on the verge of folding? Well, what happened, Mark, is the year before Ray Kroc bought the team, uh, the league took over. They made us the players like owners of the team, technically. We were running the team with Ron Ingram, and they knew, they said, listen, whatever gate is coming in, we'll split among you guys, you know, that will get you whatever money, but either you do that or we stop the franchise. So we want to keep it going. And we were going for a good crowd in San Diego as well. But it's a good story after that because, you know, I became a free agent after that because of my contract. And then when Ray Clark bought the team, I received a phone call from Buzzy Babesi inviting me to San Diego. I was living in Philadelphia at the time. 
he said, uh, you know, to sign a contract. And I said, uh, okay. And I went to San Diego. And Buzzy was, I, I tried to get a franchise, McDonald's franchise in my contract. And Buzzy said, absolutely not. <laughs> he said, that's, Paxton is not here. Because Richie won a franchise. And he, he said, Ray Clark won't do that. So when I negotiated with Buzzy, Buzzy was a nice man. And he was trying to obviously lower my salary down. And I said, he said, well, my baseball player, when they make that kind of money, at the time, you offered me $150,000 a year. That was in 1974. I said, I'm making that now plus bonuses. I was making about $20,000 in bonuses. And he said, well, when my players, baseball players make that kind of money, they don't have bonuses. I said, that's why I play hockey. <laughs> and then I said, at one point, he said, I'll make you an offer. And in 1974, he made me an offer of $175,000 a year for six years with a personal guarantee from Mr. Clark. So I called my attorney, because I negotiated my own contract. So I called my attorney in New Jersey. I said, are you sitting down, Richard? And I told him, he said, because in those days, there was no computer. You know, right. everything was facts. And I said, guess what? I said, here's the deal. He said, bring it down right now. I said, I will. And that, and then that's how I ended up, you know. And then it's funny because after that, Rick Clark decided he didn't like hockey a year later. And every team I've been with after that, they always honored my contract, and Rick Clark never has to pay a penny. Oh, interesting. Every team paid. Yeah, yeah. Even the Whalers at the end. After the Mariners' demise, Andre, you signed. I was glad to see that you signed with the Houston Arrows, a team that had just lost the house, but also had a lot of good young hockey players. Terry Ruskowski, Rich Preston, John Tonelli, Scott Campbell, Morris Lukowicz. Talk a little bit about your decision to sign with the Arrows and uh, how that season played out for you. The reason I chose Houston, because at the time, Gordy, Mark, and Marty had gone to Hartford. And then Bill Deneen was a coach, and I had so much respect for Bill Deneen. Uh, great coach, great human being, and I said, I always felt like if I had a chance to play for somebody, it would be Bill Deneen. And uh, when the officer came up to play for him, and the fact that the house had gone to Hartford, it was a good situation for me to go there because they still had the young talent there. They still had Terry Roskowski, Rich Preston, you know, all those guys, and I said we could have a very good team. And uh, we had we did have a good season, and uh, I was really happy that I made that decision uh, because I, I played with the men I wanted to play for, and I played with some great teammates there as well. The once again bad luck strikes uh, in your career. Uh, you're, I had lots of those, by the way, with teams I played for. Yeah, it did. Uh, nothing personal, I guess, because you always. Uh, you always produced, and again, you had a great year, 77 assists that year with the Houston, 113 points. Um, and then you enter our world in New England uh, in the offseason. The Arrows send all their, or sold all the players to Winnipeg once again. Uh, your ability to uh, kind of foresee these type of things works out for you. You're not forced to go to Winnipeg. You're a free agent again, and you join Bill Deneen again. And you become a New England Whaler in 1978. Talk a little bit about uh, a little bit about that decision. Well, there were uh, there were a couple of reasons why I went to Hartford. One of the reasons was Bill Deneen, and the other reason was Howard Baldwin. 
because when I first came with the Flyers in 1967, Howard was a ticket manager for the Flyers. So I got to know Howard pretty well. And I always had a lot of respect for Howard for what he's done, you know, with hockey as far as the WHC and the teams he was with. So I figured, you know, if I have a chance to play with Bill Deneen and I can reunite with uh, Howard Baldwin in Hartford, that could be a great situation for me. And at the same time, I knew that, you know, Gordy, Mark, and Marty were still in Hartford. So I said it was a win-win situation for me to come to Hartford. And so... I, at that point, there were not too many teams. There were not too many teams left. I, I almost, <laughs> right. you know, by, by every year that I became a free agent, I thought I was making the right decision. I always thought that every team I picked, from the time I picked away the, the Blazers in Philadelphia, I said, good, I'm going to finish my career in Philadelphia. When I went to New York, I said, there has to be a team in New York, otherwise there won't be a league. Then when I went to Houston, to San Diego, then I said, hey, who would want to play in that kind of weather? You know, this right. is the best. When you go to Minnesota, you know you don't have to live there. You go back to San Diego. <laughs> right. and then when I went to Houston, I figured, hey, the oil company, they won championship. This is going to be my last stop. And then when I went to Hartford, I said, well, the insurance company owned the team. Can't be wrong. So right. I always tried to choose a team for the right reason but they still fold it except the word right then um, I met a lot of good people like you yeah well, you know thanks <laughs> yeah you certainly had a I big you met a lot of people in Hartford. I mean, you were such a big part of the community as a as a player in your business, uh, coaching, alumni, your charity, uh, just a, a huge part of the community, well-loved. And I think I'll tell you that when I post something online about Chuck Caton and Andre Lacroix and the memories, people come back of that duo uh, you and Chuck had great chemistry and uh, did a great job on the radio and, and brought Whalers hockey to uh, people uh, with uh, 50,000 watts and 1080 WTIC, not only to people in Hartford, but uh, all around uh, the United States. Uh, talk a little bit about working with uh, with Chuck and uh, those days as a Whaler broadcaster. Well, you know, Chuck's the best. I mean, um, I worked with Chuck for, what, eight, ten years, and uh, – even when Chuck moved to North Carolina, we talked at one point, we tried to get back together in North Carolina. Because I remember one time my daughter was was living in North Carolina, and every time I went to visit her, I would go see Chuck and we'd talk. And then uh, at one point, he, Jimmy Rutherford was the manager of the team, and I knew Jimmy. And uh, I went to talk to him because Chuck had asked me, to, you know, if you're interested, go talk to Jimmy, see what happened because I would have loved to move back to North Carolina, to be honest with you, to continue to do the radio with Chuck. And uh, Jimmy just said, we don't have anything in the budget for that. You know, he said, it's not going to happen. But Chuck and I tried because we had such a great combination, the two of us. You know, Chuck was like uh, the good cop. I was a bad cop. <laughs> right. Um, right. I was never, I always... I always said it the way it was. If if the Whalers played bad, I said it. If they played well, I said it. Because I knew the people would listen to us, and if they listened to us, I want them to try to visualize what I was telling them. So I didn't want to find excuses. like Because 
too many people that do games today. They're such homers, you know, it's not even fun listening to them. I agree. So, And that's why Chuck and I got along so well because I think I'm surprised I last that long because I thought that the Whalers at some point might say, either you change. And I think that's what happened at the end, by the way, Mark. The reason I didn't do the Whalers at the end on the radio is because some of the players complained that I was too negative on the radio and they decided to go in a different direction. Well, I think that they were, and I recall that very vividly, uh, that, uh, you know, obviously we had an ownership change. That changed the entire culture of the organization with the Whalers. I don't think they ever really recovered from that. And they were looking for uh, cheerleaders uh, to be be, uh, the, the color people. And the thing about yep. you is, yeah, you know, once in a while you, you get under a player's skin. You talk about good cop, bad cop, and that's very accurate because Chuck was able to play it straight and do his thing well. And you were able to point out things that were positive and things that were negative. And that, as a listener, gave you a real good idea of what was happening on the ice. I think I think Chuck, Chuck loved the fact that I would disagree with him at times on the air, because he had to say it the way it was, and I would come, I would bring a different aspect of the game that that it happened. So Chuck liked that because he said that's what the fans they don't want to hear. They want to hear two different views of what happened on the ice. So I, I think that you know th- there were so many good times in Hartford, to be honest with you, and I agree with you completely. I think at the end they were looking for cheerleaders who would come and say. Listen, we need to be positive about this. But I asked them, when they decided that I was not going to do the radio again, I remember asking them, I said, could you give me one reason why I shouldn't be doing it? Did you, can you show me one letter that you received that was negative about what I said on the air? Could you tell me one phone call you received about something that did, I said on the air that was wrong? And they couldn't come up with anything. So I said, obviously you're giving in to some of the players that don't like the fact that they're being not criticized, but tell, make it, telling the mistake they made on the ice. I would not criticize the players for what he did. I would just say, well, if you would have back-checked, for example, you could have stopped him, you know, that kind of thing. I would say, because I knew that a lot of people would turn to watch the game on TV, but turn the sound off and listen to Chuck and I. Right. But I want them to see, I want them to make sure that's what I was saying. It's what they saw on TV. So oh, no. that's why I, I, I miss Chuck a lot because he and I, you know, we, we got along very well during the radio and we had, we made a great, a great team together. Absolutely. And you can certainly see by the fans' reaction, even today, all those years later, uh, they really appreciated that. And I know I did as a fan and uh, as an employee, too. It was a lot less fun on game nights uh, when you weren't there, that's for sure. And uh, it was always, <laughs> you're always good for a laugh. You always uh, crack me up and remind me how much better looking my wife was than me. And um, just, uh, <laughs> just, uh, it was always, it was always fun. Um, you know, I saw a recent. I, I saw fine. She's a great lady. <laughs> Absolutely. I agree. The uh, recent. You that long has to be great. Okay. Excuse me. I said to stay with you that long, she has to be great. She has to be something special. I would agree with that 100%. And uh, I remind myself of that every day. Um, 
you recently had an appearance with Bernie Perrant, uh, I believe, uh, yep. this, this past weekend. A little, little curious. You've had a long time uh, rapport with Bernie um, as a teammate and as a friend. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your friendship with Bernie Perrant? Well, you know, Bernie and I go back. When I was playing for the Peach in Peterborough, Bernie was playing for Niagara Falls. And then, then we played for the Flyers together. And for some reason, we always, you know, had a, a good relationship the two of us. And then, obviously, I went my own way. And Bernie, had, you know, went his own way as well. But he went to Toronto, then went back to the Flyers. And then we didn't see each other for a long time, to be honest with you. And then I went to the 40-year reunion with the 67 Flyers in, in 2007. And then uh, I saw him then, and we were so happy to see each other. And then this past Saturday, I was in Philadelphia to do a signing with Bernie, and I had not seen him till 2007. It's been 10 years since I've seen him. And then as soon as we saw each other, we, we hugged each other. We were so happy to see each other. We talked to each other in French for a little bit. We talked to each other in English. And then Bernie still has his big boat down in the, the shore. He said, you need to come and visit me in New Jersey. And he, he remarried. And he said... Uh, it's really, really happy, and we we couldn't talk enough about you know the the fact that we miss each other. And then after I came home, I text Bernie to tell him that you know it was so nice to see him. I hope we stay in touch. And then he texts me back. He says, "I love you too." He said, "Make sure you come and see me down to New Jersey." So you know those are the relationships you build over the years. You just don't happen to build them over one year or two years. So even sometimes when you don't see each other, like like I told you before too, Mark, we don't see each other that much or we don't talk to each other that much. I consider you a good friend. And then that's what happened when you build a relationship over the years that you play hockey. Speaking of, oh, you, you mentioned something when you talked to Bernie. You said you were talking friends to each other a little bit. Did I recall like back when you were with the Flyers that I think it was Vic Stasiak who at some point prohibited you, Bernie, Rosie Paymont, Cibon Nole from speaking French. Uh... That's a very good story. What, and that's a true story. What happened is I was with the Flyers. There were Jean Guijan, Jean, Simon Nole, Bernie Perrant, Serge Bernier. There were five, six or seven of us that was French. And also, we didn't socialize with each other in Philadelphia. Even when we were on the road, we didn't socialize. We didn't, we, were, we didn't go out together. And then I think Vic Stasek did not like French Canadians because at one point we, were, we were had a problem winning and he called all the French guys in a room and he said, I don't want you to speak French anywhere, on the bus, anywhere. And I said, oh, my gosh. He said that to us on a Wednesday. On a Friday, we were going to Montreal to play the Canadians. On Saturday morning, front page of the newspaper, big picture of Vic he won't let this player speak French. Well, if it happened today, he would be banned from hockey. Right. Well, <laughs> they tried to find out who did that. And then Marcel Pelletier was a scout at the time, came in the uh, came for the pregame skate in the morning. He said, we'll find out who did this, and he won't be alone. Well, eventually they found out that Bernie's the one that, that told the newspaper about it. Mm -hmm. At the time, Clarence Campbell was president, president of the National Hockey League. He called Stasiak in. We never called any of us in to find out if he said it or not. Obviously, Stasiak denied it. 
but you did say it, and then everything went, you know, dead. That was it. And that's when Bernie got traded to Toronto after that. Well, well, it is certainly a uh, different world today, and it is. That's for, that's often for the for the better. Um, now, upcoming, you will be returning to the Hartford area. You'll be part of the uh, Whalers event at the uh, uh, Hartford Yard Goats in uh, in late July, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing you as well. Um, it's going to be nice for you to come back, and I know a lot of people are looking forward to seeing you uh, back here. I think the Chuck Caton will be here too as well. I can't wait to see everybody, and, and uh, mostly the fans. I mean, you know, I tell people, I said, the one thing hockey misses today that we've had in the good days is Booster Club. The Booster Club has been so good for hockey for so many years, and then it came to the point where the game got too expensive, the game got too much for the, you know, and thank God the Booster Club in Hartford still exists to promote the Whalers, to be honest with you. And uh, I wish more people would do that. Absolutely. They've done a great job for charities as well, and they've hung in there all these years later. And I know they and all of us are looking forward to seeing you. So, uh, But, Andre, again, always a pleasure, my friend. And uh, Same we uh, look forward to seeing you uh, in a few weeks. Thanks, Mark, and let's keep in touch. Absolutely. Thanks, Andre. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast. Be sure to visit us at prohockeyalumni.org. This episode of the PHA Podcast is sponsored by HockeyTournaments.com. If you're looking to play in a tournament or just list your tournament, head over to HockeyTournaments.com.